0: Blimey.
1: Ooh, this is one out of a jam jar you got here. The House of Mystery contains demons, angels, elementals, magicians, wizards, avaritions, adult language, and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not enter the House of Mystery. All right, then.
0: On the show. All right, hello. Welcome, everyone, to the House of Mystery. This is the John Constantine and Friends Podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and curator of the House of Mystery. And the demon bisexual butler who cleans up after me and my guest is here as well. Hello, David. Hello, everybody. Okay, so are you ready, David, to get into some interesting material? Not perfect material, but interesting. Interesting Interesting material. material.
1: Yeah. We just don't want to, you know, like... Unleash uh, too many evils on the world, like put bringing in the lurker from the threshold.
0: That's such a perverted name. That sounds like a lurker um, from the some, threshold. It sounds like a cuckold. It does, doesn't it? Are you a cuckold? No, I'm a lurker You're beyond the, the threshold. threshold. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna go with that. You're gonna go with yeah, that? Yeah, that's gonna be my thing. That's your title. I'm a bit of a cuck, so
1: I'll just go with that. I'm the lurker of the threshold. Where is Zatana? Oh
0: So in this episode, we will delve into the Batman animated film, Batman, the doom that came to Gotham. I know it seems like an odd choice for us precisely because of all the perceived anti Batman jokes we make on this show. Yes. But as I always say, I like Batman quite a bit. I just think as a character, DC continually due to monetary reasons, grossly overuses the characters origins and overestimates its value as a reliable writing device oftentimes.
1: Well, this is also, for, for me, this is delving into the part where I love Batman, which is the Elseworld title. Elseworld titles are like the perfect haven in comic books for really well-thought, different and unique Batman titles. And the Doom that came to Gotham, when this came out, a lot of people were, when, when it first came out in... Uh, in comic book form, a lot of people were making a big deal about it because it was going to be, it was being marketed as like a spiritual sequel to Gotham by Gaslight, which is one of my top five favorite comics of all time. And it's, it's also because it's done by a very good friend of mine that passed away recently, Brian Augustin, who was the writer of Gotham by Gaslight, and also his uh, artist partner, Mike Magnola, who does Hellboy. And Magnola, when he did, uh, when he came back to Batman in an Elseworld style, he came up with this story that was the Doom uh, that came to Gotham, which was almost, everyone was like saying it's a spiritual sequel to Gotham by Gaslight. It's just Magnola, instead of Gotham by Gaslight, where it was, Gotha, it was Batman versus Jack the Ripper, and it was told in like a Victorian storytelling, this was Magnola tapping into his Cthulhu love his love of basically Lovecraft and taking that visuals that was very loved in Gotham by Gaslight, bringing it over and saying, I'm going to do a Lovecraft story. Yeah. And he did. And the comic was, was very well received. Well, and that's the reason
0: why, you know, we are delving into this particular movie because yes, David, there are things that we have problems with when it comes to the typical Batman mythos, right? There's a lot of, overused tropes continually. Whereas with these particular elseworld titles, there seems to be a little bit more room to stretch creatively speaking your legs a bit. Yeah. And even though, you know, you have this character's origin story being used as a writing device continually. For example, as it pertains to his origin story, how many times must we hearken back to the death of Bruce's parents? parents? Yeah. Obviously, there's a certain degree that you must when adhering to the core characterizations of a hero. And this very thought, Dave, finds itself at the foundation of yet another Batman movie. Mm-hmm. This one specifically, Batman, The Doom That Came to Gotham. The difference, though, with this film is that they use it in a way that situates Batman outside of secular materialism, whereby his origins are parallel or possibly adjacent to a distinct and unique form of cosmic pessimism as defined by, as you mentioned, the late H.P. Lovecraft. Yes, and that's why, David, ultimately, we decided to discuss this movie. It was the way by which the original writers of the source material chose to interweave the Lovecraftian cosmology with Batman mythos. Yeah. Where they leaned heavily on the more supernatural elements of Batman's universe by the inclusion of characters like Raz al Ghul or Ra's al Ghul and everyone's favorite demon. Well, my favorite demon, Etrigan. Yeah. And the inclusion of such a character like Etrigan is in large part key in understanding much of the philosophical undercurrents that form the teleological determinism that instigates the progression of the actual plot in the movie. Yeah. And we're going to talk a lot more about this in a moment because this was an interesting component, probably the most interesting component that was used to contrast the meaningless indifference of the universe that makes up much of Lovecraft's writings.
1: Yeah, because that's the, that is the one core concept of any Lovecraft humor that I think real Lovecraft writers that, oh, that would try to do a Lovecraft story, they get it all the time, which is at the end of the day, you your existence is meaningless compared to... The gods, the elder gods, Cthulhu, all those, you know, Sogoth, the, 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 they don't care about humanity. The, humanity is insignificant. Their existence is insignificant. It's just a bunch of chaos in the end.
0: Right. And a lot of those creatures that Lovecraft made, in fact, I'd say all of them, those characters that are these elder gods were simply a metaphor for how unknowable the universe is but that's what they were they were a metaphor for our insignificance that yeah. when we compare ourselves to the actual universe
1: yeah we are uh, we are so small yeah. and we are nothing it's the unknowable and the uncontrollable yeah because like you can't stop you the know signal mal you can <laughs> you can you, you you can't stop a lovecraft villain or monster you can only prolong the inevitable that's the That's the overall gist and tension you have in a lovecraft story is like it's a march to the inevitable pretty much yeah and you can't stop and I agree with you the It would in doom in the doom that comes to Gotham putting that in parallel to Batman's nature where it's like he's willing to basically accept his destiny to become Batman. Bruce is willing to accept that. Because of this unhuman drive he has inside of him, like this need to 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 delve out justice at dressed up as a bat. <laughs> but yeah. well, see. That's that, another thing. They actually made
0: that whole thing make more sense. Make
1: more sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but but it, they did it in such a very Lovecraft way, where it was where it it delved into kind of like that horror element that basically. This is the sacrifice he has to truly make.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because they took a lot of different things. In some sense, you're taking the idea of gothic horror and you're meshing it with Lovecraftian cosmic horror. And the two genres are vastly different in its intent. So when you put those elements together... It creates quite the friction, and they actually made that friction manifest. They embodied that friction through the very final confrontation that we find ourselves viewing at the end of the movie. But Dave, before we get into all of that, give me your initial thoughts. You seem pretty excitable, but what were your initial thoughts on the
1: movie? Here's the funny part. I was really excited about this because I originally read... Uh, the doom that came to Gotham comic book wise. And I loved it. I loved the story that they told. And I thought Mike McNoll did a fantastic job doing a Lovecraft story in the vein of a comic book. So as when the first trailer came out, I was really excited. I'm like, okay, we're going to finally get to see this. But then little hesitation started coming in because you know, as DC Animated started releasing more and more of their movies and adaptations of a lot of their stories, a overall a overall crit- uh, criticism of DC Animated right now is they will take some of their most beloved stories, adapt them, and not really land stick the landing on them. Of late,
0: yeah, of because late. it's been like that for what maybe. Five years five now? Five years now because Because it, before that, prior to that five year mark, they were on the top of their game. Oh, yeah, when they it, were when it top. came to animation.
1: And like I think it's all started with the death of Superman. When they came out with that one, and everyone was like going, you know, you guys were on a roll and then that came out, and then that kind of fell flat. Gotham by Gaslight came out, kind of fell flat. It was missing something they get their core content. The, it's like DC animated now looks at the story that they're going to adapt and they try to stick the theme that's it but they try to tweak it or maybe add soften it a bit because they 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 understand as i I've, I've been told many a times by like people who uh work in the DC animated industry they have to soften it for a younger generation or a younger audience.
0: That's nonsense.
1: And to me, it's like, why? Because in a long run, the whole point of the story is like the theme that you're trying to tackle is for a mature audience. It's for an overall audience. I can, I can let. It's probably the reason why they're probably doing that,
0: Dave, because I can't disagree with that. I, I haven't watched as many adaptations as you have these animation, these animated adaptations, but there's there's always been this concerted effort to market things to younger individuals for obvious reasons, right? Uh, They are the key demo for a lot of things. And when you slap a rated R on a movie or a mature warning, oftentimes children, younger people, won't find themselves viewing it for whatever reason. Yeah. And because of that, that cuts down on any potential monetary gains, revenue. So you see them trying to soften things up. So there is is a method to the ridiculous madness. Oh, yeah. However, it doesn't always make for great stories.
1: Exactly. It it kind of, it changes the story. And if you're going to change the story, then, you know, you're, you're, you're taking away the soul of the narrative. And that's what happens with... Has there ever been a high, let's say, rated R book,
0: let's say, very mature. Has there ever been an adaptation that was PG-13 that came close to even
1: feeling authentic? Authentic like it's original source material? Maybe you know? Constantine. Maybe Constantine. I thought I was going to bring up that was City of Angels. Okay,
0: let's talk about live action first. Live action wise, there hasn't been, even though you can point to Constantine, the 2005 Keanu Reeves Constantine, you can point to that movie and say that's an excellently produced film because it is. It's a beautiful film, but there's an argument to be made And the one making that argument would win every time that it's not really an authentic Constantine movie. Yeah, yeah. But I would say for the purpose of of this discussion, I would say that is one of a very small few films that were based on mature source material. I mean, the closest then transitioned to a PG-13 movie. Now, I know people might be saying, Michael, that movie was rated R, but it wasn't supposed to be it was written as a pg13 movie and the studio just simply turned it rated r <laughs> yes. for no reason
1: <laughs> for no reason and it was like we need more we need more violence in this film thank yeah. you <laughs> so is there anything you can think of dave outside uh, of that the one that i was like originally thinking about was watchmen watchmen but watchmen was rated r though yeah I was trying to remember if they ever made Watchmen p g thirteen I oh, don't I think they're horrible did. I, I I don't think they're dead I think maybe I'm trying to think v for vendetta oh v for vendetta okay. might have been p g thirteen when it came out released and yes, then it later was. on it uh, they had the rated R cut that got released yes originally it was p g thirteen and I don't remember how I felt about that movie i've when it- originally came out I remember liking it. Yeah. Same here. I I liked it. And to this day, I still like it. But like when you take a look at its source material, it's two different animals. Yes. Because like the source material is so packed with political, political venom from Alan Moore. Mm -hmm. The movie is just like a, it's a surface, it's a surface level superhero film that tries to get (laughs) that political element And it it barely gets there.
0: So maybe that's an example on the opposite side that here you have a adaptation that wasn't willing to tackle all those mature themes that Alan Moore's original V for Vendetta had. Yeah. So. All right, Dave. So overall you felt like the source material itself is way stronger oh, much than the stronger. actual adaptation
1: i think it i think the source material even even after initial viewing is still much more stronger and i would encourage fans of batman if you're going to watch doom by doom by gotham and you do go right ahead but go back and read the original source material because like the source material hits in a different way well i am one of those that
0: I have not read the source material. So my first exposure to this specific story is this film, but there, there, there are a lot of intriguing elements that I can imagine would be a lot more coherent mm-hmm. in the actual graphic novel because it, it seems like the writer and director, they were working with some great material here. Oh yeah. Cause there, there's a, there's a, a bit of that brilliance is spread throughout the movie, mm-hmm. but there's also something missing that makes the movie far from perfect and just obviously flawed in many ways. Now, the official synapses are PR release for this film, Batman, the doom that came to Gotham. Is a 2023 American animated superhero film based on the DC comics character Batman produced by Warner brothers animation and distributed by Warner brothers home entertainment. It is the 51st installment in the DC universe animated original movie line. Although I think it's less than 10 at this point when it comes to the reboot because they rebooted the whole Canon with um, apocalypse. Right. Oh yeah. Apocalypse. The justice league dark apocalypse war. I believe. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Inspired by the three-issue comic book miniseries of the same name, published from November 2000 to January 2001 under DC Comics Elseworld's imprint, the film follows an alternate Batman in the 1920s who is fighting against supernatural forces that are taking Gotham by storm after he accidentally reawakens an entity known as the (laughs) Cuck on the Threshold. the threshold. (laughs) The Lurker on the Threshold. So, David, the strength of this movie is not the movie in itself. Yeah. But the source material and how the filmmakers utilized it in the animated medium, taking much of the iconography that makes up the world of Batman as well as its tropes and making a statement about Batman's duality, you know, man and creature of the night. Yes, in many batman stories most of us are very much aware of this and these are the stories i tend to gravitate toward batman is often paralleled with monsters or seen as a tragic figure like that of the monsters from universal stable of creature pictures the themes of tragedy inner demons and the duality of his of his identity as bruce wayne And the bat are often components of understanding his purpose, and that's going to be a key word here, and are used to uncover and dissect components of the human condition. Yeah. That's another key phrase there we want to remember. Essentially used in a generalized sense to say something about the individual in society. Not always about the individual per se. Or the nature of being, but the nature of the individual in society and how all of that interacts with one another. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to the use of Etrigan, in large part, he was used to aid in narrative comprehension. That's another key point here to understand. And I say this because not everyone watches with the eye towards analism or an, what's analism
1: <laughs> what is analism David I think that's something I search on porn uh, up. <laughs> that's
0: <laughs> analism <laughs> so what was I saying oh etrigan. So etrigan. etrigan in large part was used in, to aid in narrative comprehension to understand at a subconscious level and that's what I was trying to say because not everyone watches with the eye towards analyzing everything that's happening. So there are certain aspects that are going to be working within the viewer at a subconscious level. And it's designed to help the viewer understand the philosophical undercurrents that form a type of teleological
1: determinism that pushes the plot forward. Not just pushes the plot forward, but pushes the character's motivation forward. Correct. Because like... The whole thing with Etrigan too is when you take a look at the 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 background story of Etrigan and um, um oh my god I I completely blanked on his host, but basically the analism <laughs> but like the relationship between Etrigan and his host, Adjacent Blood yeah is it is kind of like this Etrigan represents like this subliminal personality that is caught within Jason blood in the back of his mind that he cannot control. It is almost like part of second nature to him. Mm-hmm. And he, ha- he, he cannot control Etrigan. The only way he could control Etrigan is by summoning him. That's it. But once Etrigan in play, Jason blood has no control over him. Who is the determining
0: Agent. Within the body of Jason Blood, when you think about it, it really is Etrigan. It's really Etrigan. And look at who Batman becomes, or Bruce Wayne. Exactly. That's why Etrigan is such an interesting character in this, because he's used to help us understand what Bruce Wayne will become.
1: And that's where that's where really good comic book—I shouldn't say just comic book writers, but writers in general—that deal. With the comic book mythos of Batman, Mm -hmm. when they do stories of Batman and Bruce Wayne and Jason Blood and Etrigan, it's always really it's it's a sign of how good the writer is because they understand that parallel. Sometimes it's not great, but sometimes it's not that great.
0: But when you get yourself a good writer tackling stories that feature Etrigan. And that's why I say it's like pretty dynamic
1: not even in like in in comics is good storytelling but also like in the batman in the animated series when they did stories of etrigan and jason blood meeting bruce wayne batman mm-hmm. they would they would they would put little things that basically show the parallel that jason blood is just like bruce wayne and etrigan is just like his alter ego they're two separate people yeah. at the end of the day like bruce wayne is not ba- bruce wayne is it, it goes with that story element that Bruce Wayne is just the mask of Batman or Batman is just the mask of Bruce Wayne. And neither are, are the same person. And that when Gotham by, uh, in doom comes to Gotham plays so well by Mike Magnola in the original source material, because he, he puts that question out there about like how Jason blood is like, he lives with the fact that Etrigan's inside of him.
0: That Bruce, sounds very
1: uh, <laughs> sexual. It does, but Bruce almost is at, at, during the story is kind of like at this at this crossroads. Am I truly willing to become Batman to seek out justice?
0: Yeah. Well, David, and then when you take all those things that you're talking about and what I was talking about talking about prior, when you take those things, when you take the writings. And ideas of Lovecraft, which are filled with notes of existentialism, like <laughs> lack of meaning, purpose, and universal indifference. And you contrast them with the, the, I guess you can say, deterministic trappings of teleology. And that, of course, is that everything in the natural world has a telos, a purpose, or an end goal. It creates... And this is the, the best part of this movie. It creates narrative friction. You have Etrigan, who foreshadows Batman's transformation into Beast, a determined, preordained fate that aligns with a universal resistance that opposes the notion of dread that comes with the cosmological indifference and insignificance, all of which are in opposition to Lovecraftian Philosophy. So in the end, it becomes a clever way to defeat your foe, yeah. essentially being a philosophical battle between telos and anime, or simply nihilism. So that to me was the strength of this movie, that it's more of a philosophical battle more than anything. It's the metaphor is what really stands. Um, Above the rest. Yeah. Now, whether or not that's the director or the writer of this movie, who knows? However, not reading the source material, but just going based on what you had said, Dave, a lot of these ideas, because they're not entirely situated overtly. Seems like a lot of these ideas are from the source material and the writer and the director of this movie were simply trying to adapt something That they might have not had complete understanding of. And some of the better details. Managed to rear its head. And become more relevant. Now the opposite can be said as well David. Perhaps there was so much going on. In these three issues. That comprised Batman. The doom that came to Gotham. And there's too much there. So they chose. The easiest themes. Philosophy. That they could bring to the service and use for the purpose of a, of a movie. Because we know that adapting graphic novels, adapting books, it's difficult. And you can't always adapt everything, specifically in a novel. You just can't. It's impossible. Yeah. It's, it's impossible to adapt a book one-to-one. Yeah. So you have to pick and choose. You have to know your battles and hopefully choose the battles. I should say that you can win. And in this case, if they did choose this, then it does work um, because it's what made the movie end on a good note for me. And something I always say is if you have a rough start, okay. But if you end strong, people are going to probably remember that more than anything. Mm -hmm. And the opening of the first act, I'd say the first 40 minutes It was a slog, Dave. It was really hard for me to get through it. At one point, I almost just said, you know, I'm not going to cover this. I don't like it. It's very boring. It felt like every other Batman story had all the typical Batman tropes Mm -hmm. that they were throwing in. And nothing really overly unique except for the inclusion at the beginning of, um, of the Elder God. Yes. That part was interesting. And that kept me... Watching, but then when we got into like 40 minutes into the movie and nothing was really happening. But luckily once Edgerton made his appearance halfway through and you started really understanding the direction they were going in and this transformation that Batman would in fact become the monster, become the beast. He would embody the bat. All of it ended up working towards an ultimate successful ending because the third act was the strongest.
1: And the third act, honestly, is the most, most uh, connected thematically to the original source material. That's what I took away from. Was that. it? Okay. Yeah, because like I would agree with you that basically, well, maybe there's too much. Sometimes with adaptations, there's too much, and they have to pull back and they have to kind of lessen some some elements from the original source material. And I would agree with you, especially when you're trying to adapt
0: anything that is derived from Lovecraft. I mean, that is just, that's
1: deep stuff. But here, the opposite honestly happened Mm -hmm. because the, the, what they ended up doing was that first part was completely added in. Like there were characters that didn't really make an appearance in the source material. We didn't have a Dick Grayson in the original source material. We didn't have any elements of of Bruce and the Robins in the original source material. So that, who they was never in really get the only main, the only characters that made a legitimate main appearance in the story was Bruce Oswald, Brendan, who's yeah. basically Grundy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and See, that would have made more sense. Uh, race ghoul, That makes sense. Green arrow, Etrigan and James Gordon. Those are the only main characters of the story of the original source material. Okay. Pause right there, David. That's one of my biggest problems.
0: Was the fact that you have Dick Grayson yeah. and some rando James character, G- Sanjay. Yeah, you know who that's supposed to be? That's supposed to be Jason Todd. That's what I thought. You have a random character like Sanjay. And then I know the other. Uh, Cassie Kane. Yeah, I know she.
1: Batgirl. Yeah.
0: But the thing is, is that Dick Grayson and Sanjay die. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: And it has no relevance. No re- relevance. On the story. It has no real impact. It doesn't spur Batman to action. Nope.
1: It does nothing. Because it had nothing to do in the original source material. And the only reason why we threw those characters and they had a bigger, quote unquote, uh, uh, impact or basically appearance in the movie was solely because, and this is my only theory why the writer would do this. To bring in more elements to show, hey, this is a Batman universe. We're going to bring in all these other faces in here so that you guys can say, yeah, this is this is Batman, right? You know, David, and that's my problem with a lot of Batman stories.
0: Just because you have a Batman story doesn't mean you need to throw in every fucking Batman character. You don't need to do that. I think people need to be more ballsy with their Batman. You know why Mask of the Phantasm is one of my favorite Batman movies of all time? Because they didn't rely on all the unnecessary Batman characters that you need, that you must throw into every Batman movie. In fact, the villain of that story was never seen before in comics. Yeah. His first appearance was in that movie. (laughs) And that movie to this day is one of the highest reviewed Batman films. Yeah. Even including live action. And that's that's sometimes you
1: just gotta go unique and original. Go unique and go original, especially what, since the original source material by Mike McNola was originally based on a Lovecraft story. The the the, the David the, that sh- makes me more frustrated now that you say
0: that. <laughs> Grayson wasn't even in the comic yeah
1: Because like the whole the whole Emphasis of the story was more Cthulhu was more Lovecraft and Cthulhu Than Batman and in the Animated version they Said no we're gonna do more Batman that's why you Get that first 30 minutes I, I I Sat through that and I I Clocked myself at 30 minutes where I'm like Going get to the freaking story Get to the story because all we're doing is just a rehash of the elements of Batman. Why is this a Batman movie? Well, this is why for 30 minutes, they have to show why this (laughs) is a Batman longer than 30 minutes. And then like the rest of the movie, then it turns into Mike Magnola's story where it's like, okay, it's the doom that comes to Gotham and you get more elements of, you know, the actual source material or the, the themes of Lovecraft start Mm -hmm. coming in more.
0: Yeah. See, if you were going to, let's say you wanted to, for whatever reason, bring in familiar cap, ca- uh, characters like Dick Grayson. Okay, well, even if the source material didn't include him, I would be open to his inclusion as long as he really mattered to the story. Yes. If you needed someone to push the plot forward or you like, for example, a death or you needed that emotional impact to do something to Bruce. Then I would say, okay, bring in this character so that you can build him up a bit, get the audience, you know, build some rapport with the audience and then kill him. Yeah. So that it matters. But when he died, first off, he died off screen. Mm-hmm. We didn't even see him. We didn't even see him. Can you imagine if we would have saw a Lovecraftian type of death? Oh,
1: it would have been Awesome.
0: But been all been awesome. the deaths but happened off screen until the ending when the movie got better. So Sanjay died off screen. Yes. Dick Grayson died, died off, off screen. screen. Imagine if both of those characters would have died on screen and Batman witnessed the horrific Lovecraftian style death of these two boys that he cared for. Yeah. That would have been the emotional impact. But the thing is, is you had the source material. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Dave. Where the real... Motivation for Bruce is the the flipping or the subversion of Batman's origin story where Thomas Wayne was in league with some. Occult practices. Am, and, uh, I, am I correct? In, in, this, in the movie? Yes. No, I'm, in the source material, that's not the case. No. So, oh my, so nothing was similar. See, to me, that's the reason why those deaths do didn't you, matter, though. So do you want to
1: know what his motivation was in the source material? Go ahead. The, the, the motivation for Bruce in the source material was to study the criminal mind. So he was supposed to actually... Investigate the disappearance of the expedition that Oswald Cobblepot led. Okay, that was the that was his motivation. Basically, the, the what the about drive personal to,
0: motivation?
1: Was there any personal motivation? There was, there was, but the overall crux of it was like his drive to understand the criminal mind and his. Okay. The reason why he's willing to become the Batman. Oh, so it was a true detective story. It was a detective story. Okay, because this wasn't. This was not a detective story. Yeah. And, and that's why I was like going, when you, if you notice, if you look at the 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 movie, it only really gets, gets really interesting when they actually introduce the whole expedition thing. And then Bruce has to figure out about Oswald and stuff, all of that the stuff with Dick Grayson and, and Jason Todd and Sammy K it, that, that was only there when I looked back at it to set up the audience to show them this is a Batman this is a Batman universe these are Batman characters See, because that's a little disappointing because the the thing that I
0: I thought was the most interesting part about this movie was was the I guess when you look at it from another perspective, I guess you can say the, his true motivation was just determinism. Yeah. Like it was fate, it was which fate. is cool philosophically, but that's not really an emotional motivation. Mm-hmm. If he had to come face to face with his deterministic path and that path leads to the death of people, of he, people loves, he loves, then you got mm, something different. That's interesting. Yeah. But it was just a deterministic path that was laid before him because of the sins of the father. Yes. And that to me just doesn't even fit philosophically with what they were saying. So that now mm-hmm. makes more sense why I had certain problems with that aspect as well.
1: And that's why, that's why I said when I took a look at it and I realized you're dealing with an adaptation, meaning Mike McNola is not the actual writer of the, the movie. It was, um, we should probably, we haven't even stated that. The director was Christopher
0: Berkeley and Sam Liu, and the writing credits was Jace Ricci.
1: Jace Ricci. And Jace Ricci is not Mike Magnola. Mike Magnola is infamous, and what made the, well, David, what made Doom come to Gotham? Do you know who uh, Jace Ricci is known for? You know what he's known for writing? Not quite. Rapunzel's
0: Tangled Adventure. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so you had a writer who writes YA, no, 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 younger than that. Children's programming for the age ranges of three to eight. <laughs> writing a lovecraftian adaptation of batman. Not only that's that. That's the problem right fucking there.
1: Having to having to come for and do an adaptation of another writer who's infamous for writing darker horror comics like Hellboy. You can't, it, I'm not like going that's what's missing is because like they're they're trying to pretty pretty the story up when it's not meant to be pretty. Why are we not hiring real i i'm not you know what i don't want
0: to say real that's a little rude why are we not hiring live action screenwriters for films like this instead you hire the guy that did teenage mutant ninja turtles the tv series robot and monsters tv series tangled before ever after tangled shortcuts pin zero part-time hero rapunzel's tangled adventure (laughs) the ghost and molly mcgee Tom and Jerry snowman's (laughs) land. And then Batman, the doom, (laughs) Doom something doesn't seem right here. (laughs) It doesn't. One of these kids are doing their own thing. Remember that game in Sesame street? Yeah. Yeah. This doesn't work. I would talk about
1: forcing the circle in the square. I'm not, I'm not saying Jace Ricci is a bad writer by any means. I mean, but this isn't his genre. This isn't his genre. That's the, that's the ultimate thing here is like you pick the wrong writer to do this, this, this adaptation, pick a writer that basically knows that adaptation knows that those type of what it takes to be in that genre. You know how many writers out there that are actually writing in the movie
0: business today That would jump. And I'm talking about writers who have written various TV shows, but haven't had their opportunity to do something like a Batman animated series. You know how many people or animated film? There are so many writers that would jump capable writers that would jump at the opportunity, but we hire people like this. This was my problem. I believe David with justice league, dark apocalypse war. Yeah. It was written by people that wrote Nickelodeon TV
1: shows. And that's, that's, that's the ultimate issue that I have with adaptations is like when DC decides to do these adaptations, they're not bringing in the original people who, who wrote the thing, who wrote the story. So in adapting it, you're not going to get the same elements. You're going to be missing things because that writer knows what the story is supposed to be about. He's, he's, even if you were to bring in Mike McDonald for consulting purposes and say, here's our script, you take a look at it and see if this catches the themes that you were trying to do. I thought he said he, you said he died. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. That was Brian Augustine. Oh, Brian okay. Augustine passed away last year, I believe. And because unless they want to commune with the dead.
0: Exactly. I mean, but you know, he's not going to be able to consult anything.
1: If you could at least bring in anyone who any, any story that they decide to adapt, anyone. Just bring in anyone, bring anyone at least tied to the original source material. What David, so that that's you can too actually,
0: logical. That's far too logical. So you can
1: actually just show them and say, Hey, is this what you guys were talking about in the story? And they'll look at it and go, no, this is not how this, this story is supposed to be about. It's not adapting. It's not adapting the story. Yeah. Just to, so it's clear, Dave, this is something that we talk
0: a lot about on our movie television review show that the network and ourselves take part in uh, critique revolve is the name of the podcast. We talk about this type of stuff a lot. Obviously we, we're not proponents of one-to-one adaptations all the time. I don't no, feel like no, they no, need absolutely. to be perfect adaptations. In fact, oftentimes When you do a perfect adaptation, it doesn't translate well. No. Because they're two very different mediums. So oftentimes what I say is I don't need a one-to-one. As long as you are able, as a filmmaker, to capture the essence of what the source material is doing. Yes. And if you can do that, then you'll make a successful adaptation. This, to me captures some of the philosophical aspects, but overall setting that aside overall, based on what you're telling me, Dave, and correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't quite capture the essence of the graphic novel.
1: No, not really. Because like, just like what we alluded to earlier, the original graphic novel was supposed to be a detective story. It's a, it's, it's a, it's told in the vein of a detective Typical film noir, right? Film noir, film yeah. noir. That's, that's yeah. what it is. Here... Or gothic noir, you can call it. In the Doom that Comes to Gotham, the animated, all they really... The, the, the main focus was you have to focus on the Batman. All the elements of Batman have to be in here. Well, that's not the point of the story. The story is about a detective story. No, 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 no. This is a Batman story. It's not a detective story. It's a Batman story. So you got to throw in elements, more more characters. I want more characters that tie to show the audience that this is Batman. Otherwise they're not going to get it.
0: <laughs> I think what I will do, David, is I will read the graphic novel and then we'll do a follow-up discussion for Patreon. And we'll post it under our Oblivion Bar discussion on Patreon if people are interested in subscribing to that mini podcast. Um, it's a dollar a month. It's really cheap and it actually helps us continue to put out content. So yeah, David, I'll read the graphic novel and we'll just do our initial reactions on it. We won't do an in-depth analysis unless I fall in love completely with the graphic novel, (laughs) Then I'm just going to have to, but I will read it and then we'll do a reaction of sorts for Patreon subscribers. And if you want to join our Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Rainman Digital and pledge a dollar for that. Okay, David, outside of all of that stuff, the voice cast I thought was pretty strong. There was actually several notable names. David, I want to say June Tully played Bruce Wayne. And if you're not familiar with David Juintali, he's the actor that um, played Nick Burkhart in Grimm. In Grimm. One of my favorite TV shows. (laughs) Underrated. Very underrated. Underrated Uh, underrated show. Uh, Then you had Christopher Gorham as Oliver Queen. John DiMaggio as James James Gordon. Gordon. Patrick Fabian as Harvey Dent. And my favorite, Jeffrey Combs as Kirk Langstrom, Langstrom. Yep. Or Man-Bat. <laughs> How did you not have a moment where he becomes Man-Bat? I mean the, th- that is that's Kirk, right? Yeah. He's Man That's like uh, Langstrom becomes Man-Bat. They kind of switched it. Yeah, now, they in switched the, it. in the comic books, do they
1: Do they use Langstrom? They do to use Langstrom okay. because like the the whole point is Langstrom's the key to Bruce's transformation to the end. See, that would make sense then. And
0: he does essentially essentially do that in this movie as well. So perhaps he was used correctly. He just wasn't the bat himself. Yeah. Uh Tim Russ was Lucius Fox. There were a lot of a lot of good talent behind the voice. I had no problems with the voice acting whatsoever. Uh, David Jutali. It's interesting to see him do work like this because typically he's a live action guy. Yes. It always surprises me when they get pretty big names to come in and do these rando parts. They don't have any ongoing Batman voices anymore, do they?
1: No, no, not anymore. I mean, like Because for years it was um
0: Kevin Conroy. I mean, he was, in my opinion, for years, for decades, the voice of Batman. Oh, yeah. And now they seem to just hire big actors yeah, or random actors just
1: for every movie. I kind of liked having the consistency of of Conroy. Well, the, the the even the funnier part is like now you're seeing actors that they've used in the DC universe. Like David, da- uh, I hope I say his name right, da- uh, Datchelma Man? Mm-hmm. He he's he's been in a lot of DC products already. He's he was Polka Dot Man in Suicide Squad. Yeah. And then on top of that, he was uh in Dark Knight. He played uh he played a I think a side character in the the, in the original Dark Knight film. Yeah. And I'm like going here, they used him as a Grendon or uh Grundy, which I thought was hilarious. But it, it it is a lost art where there a lot of voice actors do not get a lot of credit that they used to have back in the day. Now it's like yeah, if we want if we want to do an animated film, we have to bring in that new that familiar voice for the fans. Isn't that sad? Kind of like I,
0: you there I mean. used to be that separation where you had your your go to voice actors that that's what they did. And then you had your live action actors, and that's yeah. what they did. And every once in a while, you'd have those occasional tent pole kid animation films, you know, like uh, Madagascar. Yeah. That you would hire top talent that can be billed on the movie poster. Will Smith, David Schwimmer, that would attract audiences. That's how it started. Then it slowly became, well, you know what? We're going to do away with all of our go to animation voice actors and start casting all live action known actors now. And that I feel is a disservice to an actual field that was dedicated to a specific group of people. That was their work. And the reason why I think it it sucks is because these live action actors work in live action so they can get other work. Whereas the voice actors, there is no other work that is literally their business. That's what they do.
1: This argument you're bringing up is a two edged sword though, because like, Everything that you just said, completely valid, completely valid. However, then you have to look at the fact that there are times when the fan base itself just clamors for a certain actor to portray uh, a character. Say, for example, Constantine. You know, people demanded if they're doing John Constantine, they have to have the one actor who played him in the live action voice him. And well, that's different, David, because Matt Ryan is Constantine. Matt Ryan is Constantine. Or even take, take it, even another actor, Jason uh, Jensen Eccles. Mm-hmm. He's constantly tied to, oh, we want to see him play Batman or his portrayal of any of the Robins, whether it's Dick Grayson or Jason Todd. And yeah, you have fans
0: now voicing, voicing their, their, desire. De- their, their desire to see yeah.
1: certain actors portray these characters. And the, the only thing that, you know, animation studios, whether it's Marvel, DC or any of the other comic book adaptation companies out there, they have to look at that and say, well, in order for this to sell, we have to bring in these names. We have to bring in, you know, Matt Ryan for a Constantine film because we don't. We know the fans might just turn away and say, "Well, I'm not going to watch it because it's not really Constantine." Well,
0: listen, (laughs) I'm
1: a huge Matt Ryan fan, and I'm a huge
0: Constantine fan, and I wouldn't mind having a different voice for Constantine. With you there. However, if I was given the choice, I would say, "Well, just go with Matt Ryan because he can do it." Mm -hmm. You know, we know he does it well. So,
1: yeah, that's an interesting point, Dave. I can't disagree. It's it's one of those arguments in in the animation genre that's really tough because there are some legitimately great voice actors yeah. that deserve the jobs, but they get turned away because some higher higher actor on the totem pole wants to portray that that character now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. So overall, the scripting wasn't ideal. The first quarter of the script was not great. Halfway through the second act, the film becomes far more intriguing. And the third act is by far the best part of the movie. So it does, in fact, end strong. The Lovecraftian horror was captured remarkably well, especially in those last few moments, <laughs> finally yes. moving into that disturbing body horror aspects. Um, A lot of the Batman isms that are just simply overused. I I just didn't care about. They weren't, especially when I find out now that it wasn't even in the graphic novel. Mm -hmm. It makes me even more annoyed. Uh, The reception generally from critics uh, over on Rotten Tomatoes, 77% reviews are pot, or I should say, yes, 77% of reviews are positive with an average rating of 65 Writing for Flickering Myth, Hasitha Fernando praised the film as an effective adaptation, highlighting the voice acting, horror elements, and the animation, saying the latter was reminiscent of Batman, the animated series. Um, just because it has a similar old world aesthetic yeah. doesn't mean it's reminiscent yeah i i definitely think dude the batman animated series is beautiful is by far (laughs) one of the best pieces of animation in film history i'm just gonna say it oh yeah mask of the
1: phantasm look at mask of the phantasm the series as well as the film Mm -hmm. and the other one the second film
0: you can't come on you can't compare it to that you just can't uh, reviewer Jackson Lucan similarly praised the film as an effective adaptation of its unique Lovecraftian elements that I would agree. It is effective in adapting Lovecraftian elements. But that's, 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 the, that's the reason why I started our discussion speaking about the strengths of the movie. And it's the mm-hmm. philosophical intent. It's the the contrasting of determinism verse insignificance and no purpose that is where the strength is. And that's not necessarily being done by the movie director or the writer. If they were just taking some of those, those aspects from the, the source material. Yeah. So I would have to give this movie, I'm going to give it, I'm going to break it apart here. I'm going to break it up. So if I were to break this down, and review this solely on scripting and directing it would probably be like a 60%. But because of the the nature of how they captured the Lovecraftian aspects and everything that had gone through I'd say it's more like a 67.
1: I'm I'm close there with you. It's I have this as a 71. Like it doesn't fail, but that's the that's the big thing that if you notice a lot of reviewers the one word that I've always heard, not just those two, but a lot of other people, even like in, in uh, fan forums, they constantly say, well, it was effective. It was effective. Essentially, you're saying it was okay. It was average. And, and that in itself should tell us that basically just because an adaptation is effective, not necessarily d- does it do the original source material justice. Yeah. And that's where I totally just run rough shot on the scripting and the story and the narrative and even the directing to some degree of this film is like, if you, I look at the original source material and I see this was the elements that were placed in front of you and you essentially waited 30 minutes for me to get to that. The other 30 minutes was just fluff. It was just creative fluff to try to set your universe that you wanted to, to explain to the audience. If It takes you 30 minutes to do that. That's not good. Yeah. You should be able to establish yourself in at least five, five Mm -hmm. minutes, not 30 or like in in your case, Mike, it took you 40 minutes. Yeah. It might've
0: been even longer. I think it was when Dick Grayson died. Is when I'm like, okay, this is getting a little more interesting, not because of the Dick Grayson's, not because of Dick Grayson's death, but just because I felt like I was finally invested. Yeah. You know, like I was like, okay, I'm, I'm on board this. So yeah. All right. Well, you know, David, that actually brings us to the end of our discussion. I don't want to beat a dead horse. Yeah. Yeah. So I gave it 67, you gave it 71. Mm-hmm. That brings it down to, or I should say that actually reflects a studio grade of about 69%.
1: Yeah. And by far, I'm not saying that this, I, I don't want our audience thinking that I'm saying this is utter garbage. If you wanted to actually go watch, watch this film, I think it's okay to watch this film. I think if you watch it with
0: an active interest in seeing how they break down some of those Lovecraftian aspects, the things that we talked about. Yeah. Then I think you should, I think it would be interesting, but the best way of viewing it would actually be to listen to our discussion first, then go in with open eyes with those philosophical glasses on and then watch the movie and see if you can pick up on some of those things. I mean, Yeah, I agree with you, David. It's not horrible. I hope that didn't come across. I feel more frustrated than anything because it does feel like this could have been excellent. Oh, yeah. If they just had made a few changes.
1: Yeah, and this this is the current trend right now in the DC animated universe where they're coming out with these really great ideas. It's just them trying to find a way to adapting these stories and basically having them hit the mark right
0: Yeah, and quit hiring children writers to (laughs) write something that's not designed for children Children. (laughs) very strange choices, it's very strange
1: uh, on my end I would tell people after you watch this, definitely read the original three issue miniseries by Mike Magnola it's just, it's a really great fun little story
0: All right. That brings us to the end. Please find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and give us a review, a thumbs up. If you've watched us on YouTube, give us a thumbs up and subscribe. Thank you, David. Thank you. Cheers, wankers. See you never.